podcast. We're about to wind up our interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. I think we'll have one final episode on Genesis 1, but today we're going to discuss the topic of the image of God from the same verse we covered last week. So here it is again, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We're going to be exploring what being the image of God means. The image isn't something we bear. We don't bear the image of God like armor for battle. It's what we are. It's the core of our identity. And so I want to be referring to, once again, Dr. Heiser from his book, The Unseen Realm. He points out some of the qualities many of us typically are tempted to identify with the image of God. Things like intelligence and reasoning ability, emotions like love, self-awareness, consciousness, language, the ability to communicate with language, having a conscience, having a free will, things like this. And he identifies the problem with defining the image of God by any of these qualities is that on the one hand, non-humans, like animals, possess some of these qualities, not to the same extent as humans, but they possess some of these qualities. But scripture nowhere describes animals or any other non-human as being the image of God on any level. And so another point Heiser makes, ideas like the pro-life position, for instance, is based on the proposition that human life, and therefore personhood, begins at conception, the point when the female egg is fertilized by the male sperm. The simple-celled zygote inside the woman's womb which pro-lifers believe to be a human person, is not self-aware. It has no intelligence, rational thought processes, or emotions. It cannot speak or communicate. It cannot commune with God or pray. And it cannot exercise its will or respond to its own conscience. If you want to argue that those things are there potentially, then that means you have only a potential person. And that's actually the pro-choice position. Potential personhood is not actual personhood. This thought process would mean that abortion is not killing until personhood is achieved, which nearly all pro-choicers would certainly consider to be after birth. So Heiser concludes that being the image of God isn't any ability or attribute. It's a status like being a family member of someone. 
And so if you were to have a family member who was born with severe mental issues and comatose, uh, that doesn't mean they're not your family member. They're your family member just because they, they can't talk to you, just because they can't love you like you love them. They're your family member. So let's switch now to John Wesley. In an early sermon called The Image of God, John Wesley describes pre-fall humanity as having an unerring understanding, an uncorrupt will, and perfect freedom. And God gave the last stroke to the image of God and man by crowning all these with happiness. Now, I'd like to describe happiness as what the uncreated energies of God shining in our spirit man produces. Some people call that joy, and they're, they're similar. They're not the same. Happiness is what the uncreated energies of God shining in our inner man produces, the joy that manifests itself in feelings of happiness. The instrument, Wesley says, the instrument being now quite untuned. God's image is still there, but we're not in tune with it. And so this is from the United Methodist Church's website. The Reverend F. Belton Joyner offers similar insight in a section called United Methodist Questions and United Methodist Answers. So here's what he says. In Genesis 126, it indicates that God created humankind in God's image so that humans would have dominion over the rest of the created order. Being created in the image of God means, first, having responsibility as stewards of creation. So in other words, being created in the image of God means that God has something for you to do. And like we said in the last episode, a part of that is using your creative will. God is a creative being. As a reflection of that, we have a creative will, a creative impulse that God has provided us an environment to express that. So we are to exercise governance over, exercise dominion over, manage, be stewards of the created order, the created world, the physical universe. Okay, so next, Genesis 127 spells out that when God created humankind in God's image, God created them male and female. Being created in the image of God means, second, that we're created for relationships with others. We have a desire and an impulse to connect with, to live in relationship with other human beings. Genesis 126, again, third point, says that God created humankind to be in God's likeness, to live in the moral life of God. Being created in the image of God means, third, that we're intended to be in relationship with God and God's values. So we reflect the family name. We're God's kids, created in his image. We're supposed to act like him, think like him, feel like him. We're supposed to reflect his values. So in his sermon, The New Birth, John Wesley used three phrases to mark these dimensions of being created in the image of God. First of all, there's the natural image. Being created in the image of God means that we are spiritual beings with freedom of will. Second of all, 
the political image. That means we are the governors of the created world and engaged in relationships with others in executing that command. We don't just do it in isolation by ourselves. We do it in partnership with other human beings. And then thirdly is the moral image. We are intended for holiness and righteousness. We are to feel like God, think like God, act like God. So Wesley would say, this perfect image, this unbroken reflection of God, was shattered by human sin. It took the perfection of Jesus Christ to restore the image. So when the New Testament talks about being born again, being a new creation, it's talking about the restoration and healing of the image of God, the original image of God in human beings. And so we'll we'll talk later in when we get to the stories of Adam and Eve in the fall about how it's particularly the moral image of God that's been abolished or destroyed in humans. The others are preserved by God's grace, by God's power, his ability. He refuses to let the image of God be totally abolished in human beings. But in particular, the moral image has been completely destroyed and needs to be recreated. So carrying on, to be in the image of God is not to be God. To be in the image of God is to be free to obey God. United Methodists take with great seriousness all three implications of being in God's image. The natural image, we invite persons to be in a relationship with God. The political image, we invite persons to care for the environment and to care for relationships. The moral image, we invite persons to live lives of personal and social holiness. Let's take a look now at the Hebrew word for image, being created in the image of God. The word is selim, T-S-E-L-E-M. It's from an unused root meaning to shade, a phantom, illusion, resemblance, a representative figure, and lastly, but especially, an idol. Now that's weird. That doesn't seem like a word you would want associated with being created in the image of God because that word idol has such a negative connotation in the rest of Scripture. But I'm going to give you a couple of examples where the word image in the Old Testament is used in conjunction with idols. The first example is from Amos 5.25. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the, in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sichus, your king, and Cayun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And then the second example is from 1 Kings eleven seventeen. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images. They broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars, and the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. Now, in the case of idols and 
all of the scriptures that condemn idolatry and its ubiquitous practice in the ancient Near East, rarely, if ever, did anyone in the ancient Near East think that idols were actual gods. The purpose of an idol was to invoke the presence of a particular god. They might function as a summons of the actual god, summoning that god's energy or ability or favor. That's what the idol functioned to do. It wasn't the actual god itself. Similarly, if you are here on earth as a tselem, you are a representation or a likeness of God, the uncreated God, the only uncreated God, intended to invoke his presence on the earth. That's what worship does. It says in Psalm 22, 3, God inhabits the praises of his people. It invokes the presence, the manifest presence of God on the earth. Your purpose in life is to give expression to God's energies that are at work on the inside of you, you being his image, having submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, being born again, having the image restored, and in the process of being healed, your purpose is to take the energies that are deposited on the inside of you and give expression to those. You're to do it in partnership with other human beings. Paul says that in Colossians 1.29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is saying, I am toiling to take this energy that is at work on the inside of me and give it expression in the churches. Mainly it's through his teaching and preaching ministry. Having status as a family member, being imagers, being born again, being adopted into the family of God, we have status as family to be a representative of his family values amongst others, amongst the earth. So it's your job as a tselem to take what God has created using his energies, the, the physical universe, other people, using his energies that will give rise to your own creative will, to both manage what has been created and make incremental improvements upon the created order. God loves to see it when his people do that, when his kids take what is his and manage it well and then maybe even improve upon it. God's created you for something to do. That's not an unimportant point. When, where we get in trouble is when we're, we choose to do something that he isn't particularly energizing in us. That's where we get in trouble. If we make our own decision, go our own way, do our own thing, it's not motivated by God's energies. We're just creating burdens for ourselves. But it is God's great pleasure when we receive fellowship with him and the energies that that produces on the inside of it. God wants it to spark our creative will, spark our imagination, Give us desires to see things happen in the world or between people to make it better. God loves to see it when his kids do that. That's what he created them for. That's what it says explicitly in the text. Being the Selim of God is why the making of idols was strictly forbidden in the Ten Commandments. 
for the Jewish people. God wanted them to know they were his selim, not objects crafted by, by humans. People are God's selim. People are the image of God, objects created by God himself. And that's why out of all creation, human life is sacred. Human life begins at conception. All human life is sacred, regardless of the abilities they have or don't have. And it is God's good pleasure whenever his kids reflect his status as family members of God and fulfill the plans and purposes that he has for them. He loves to see it. That'll conclude our podcast for today. Thanks for joining us again. We will uh, have another one next week. And maybe, maybe we'll finish Genesis 1 next week. Maybe we'll have two more. We'll just have to see how it goes. I don't know. But uh, until then, have a good week, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.